Please turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. In a moment, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. For those of you following along with a sermon card, we'll try to get back to that next week. It's only the six verses. We're not going through verse 18 this week. We'll do that next week, Lord willing. And we'll try to have you a new sermon card that'll run through the first of the year so that you know how to pray in advance through the text that we'll be studying together and thinking of it through together uh, in God's grace. It's so, so good to see so many familiar faces uh, in the congregation. Some of you have been back with us. So glad you're here. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. We're thrilled to have you. We'll, a little note that might be helpful to you is we do consecutively exposit scriptural texts. So last week we were in 2 Corinthians 2, and this week we're in 2 Corinthians 3, and next week, Lord willing, we'll finish 2 Corinthians 3, and the week after that, uh, well, Matt D'Amico will be here, as Pastor Kurt announced, but there'll be 2 Corinthians 4 and so on. And so we really try to let, to the best of our ability, we try to let the main point of the text be the main point of the sermon. And so whoever is the expositor of the day, as they're working through whatever section of Scripture that they're working through each time they have the pulpit, sometimes yours truly is surprised by the main point of the sermon as I get deeper and deeper into the text. Sometimes I write a title when I'm making the sermon card, and then I get deeper into the text, and I'm sort of like, wait a second, I don't really like that title for this because I think the main point of this text is that, and I think that's how the Spirit is wanting to communicate with us today. And so that is truly a labor of love that the expositor for the day goes through, and I want you to know that afresh if you've been with us a while, and if, if you're new with us, I want you to know that so you're not surprised. I really think it's hard to get a feel for our church in one Sunday. I think it takes three or four because of the way that we work consecutively through passages, and we want you to be at home in a church uh, because we think that the gospel cultivates relationships in the riches of community, but we also think the gospel needs ministered. We believe the gospel needs ministered. So the gospel... It cultivates relationships, but it needs ministered. The gospel needs ministered to us. We need ministered to in the gospel. And so for the gospel to cultivate relationships, we do need ministry. I wish the church was always rosy, never had any problems, no conflicts, no tripwires, no confusion, no conflicts. Uh, but that is emphatically not the case. And it was not the case of the church at, at Corinth when Paul wrote this second Corinthians to the church at Corinth in the mid-AD 50s either. This church had its issues, just, just like any church has its issues. If you're looking for a church that won't cause you to bend and stretch and work through things, you won't find that. That is not the promise of the gospel, is that in this epoch that you will be a part of a church that doesn't stretch you, that doesn't sometimes have members that uh, do things that mistreat you or that, that offend you. The issue is not whether or not where humans are that there will be problems or conflicts or not. The issue is, is the gospel at work among us to cultivate relationships, to walk through problems. The gospel has to be ministered. Ministry is in the gospel. And this text is about gospel ministry in that way. And it is about being in relationships 
to the depth that the Apostle Paul would even care to write something like this. There are words you're about to hear about letters of recommendation. Uh, This is not a passage that condemns letters of recommendation. It's just that they were past that. They were in a relationship already. And a letter of recommendation was going to be a poor substitute for a relational conversation, whether it was by letter or in person. Remember, this was before the days of planes, trains, and automobiles. This is not a passage, though at first blush it may seem like it, that condemns the letter of the law of Moses. Far from it. The letter of the law of Moses is Scripture. It's in your Older Testament, and it's not condemned. The usage of it is being condemned, and we'll get into that in a moment. The living God gave us that Older Testament just the same as he gave us the Newer Testament. It fits together. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament and covenant have the same range of meaning. We're going to see that in this text. We're going to read about it. This passage is telling us that common recommendation letters have their limits, and that the letter of the law is so incomplete by itself that the letter of the law by itself will kill you. It doesn't go far enough. Wrong takeaways from this passage as we get into it is that it's anti-academic, that it would be against us being well-read or doing a deep study of the letters of Scripture. That's not what this passage is going to communicate, and I'm afraid if you just read the six verses and walk away, that's maybe your impression, and that's not in context Right takeaways are that the relational cannot be fixed by returning to the formal, by walking back the relationship to the the level of formality. Right takeaways is that the empowerment of the Spirit within each believer helps us understand the New Testament, the New Covenant rightly, in a life-giving manner as God is indeed alive Himself. In fact, verse 3 we're about to read talks about the living God. And verse 6 talks about how God gives life, not death. And so in a healthy, established ministry, the context and the content are internal and have fruit externally. There are external realities, the fruit of a Christian life, but this passage is about the heart work. It's about the internal work. It's about the depth of an internal context and an internal content that is very much alive and not like the letter that kills, demanding outward works without inward work. The living God gave us these testimonies. We dare not go back to formal letters or the letter of the law, both of which are external. Mike Andrews, I'm indebted to for my points this morning. So before we read the text, let me tell you how we're going to roll out preaching this text. Number one, a healthy ministry is internal transformation, not external recommendations. Number two, healthy ministry is internal God-sufficiency, not external resume building. And number three, healthy ministry is internal new covenant in Christ, not external incomplete old covenant works. I don't think that you would have had time to write that down, so let me just tell you how I think you can remember it. Verses 1 to 3, internal, not external recommendations. Verses 4 and 5, internal, not external resumes. Verse 6, internal new covenant, not external old covenant. And so we're going to talk about those things after we read the text. Glance at the text with me now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Confidence that we have. Not that we are sufficient. Not that we are sufficient. In ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The action is to work through conflict when it's lingering rather than to look to external fixes. And the benefit when we do that is we will experience a more satisfying community because it's built on the internal work of the Spirit, what God does, rather than the external work of self and resumes and recommendations. And so let's break this down beginning with point one. Healthy ministry is internal transformation not built on external recommendations. The context of 2 Corinthians is helpful. I'm not going to put it, we're not going to put it on the screen, but listen to chapter 5, verse 12. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 12, chapter 10, verse 12, same book that we're reading right now. It says this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Listen to some of the background of the the problem that was going on here, the kind of allegations that was levied against the Apostle Paul and his cadre of associates that planted this church at Corinthians. They're writing from Asia. They're writing from Ephesus. They're writing back over. The letter's been transported by Titus to the church at Corinth, and there's problems. There's problems that are being worked through, and apparently there are super apostles that are making allegations against Paul and are undermining his gospel ministry. So listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I have been a fool, he says. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so Paul finds himself in a strange situation where he has to to sort of elevate his profile in a way with them, reminding them of the work that God's done among them. At the same time, he says, I'm not anything. It's only God's grace in me. I'm not sufficient by myself. And so there's this charge that's being levied by these super apostles, and he's feeling the need to say, I'm not inferior to those people that have brought letters of recommendations and traveled across Asia Minor and sailed the Mediterranean Sea and come up into the Aegean. I'm not inferior to them. The gospel that I shared with you when we started this church in AD 51 is the gospel you need to stay with now. Let's cultivate these relationships. And so Paul doesn't run away from this and just, well, let's just start a new church. He works through this, and it's painful. And he's really arguing to them that his letter of recommendation is them. Not that he made the letter, Christ made the letter, but he delivered the letter. Delivered being the verbal form of deacon or servant or minister, as it's translated four times in verses 7, 8, and 9. He delivered or deaconed or ministered this letter, but Christ wrote the letter in their hearts. What he's saying to them differently is this. You're my letter. If you want to know the kind of ministry that I'm about in the gospel, get yourself a mirror out and look, because you're my letter. And I'm not writing you another letter of recommendations. I don't care what the so-called super apostles said. You're my letter. And that's what he says to them. And it's um, it's kind of inspiring Really? 
I mean, in preparation for this sermon and thinking about this point, healthy ministry is about internal transformation and not about external recommendations. I thought about you and Christ's work in you, but the fact that I've been able to work with others to deliver this letter of recommendation about this gospel ministry by just working in the harvest field and shepherding you over the course of, of almost two decades. And I, I mean, we don't have time for this, but I see people that have, have stopped cohabitating in order to live for Jesus. I see people that have left a life of drunken stupor in order to live in sobriety for Jesus. I mean, I see people that never read their Bible that now have big chunks of it committed to their internals. I see people who didn't come to church and now they hardly miss a Sunday. I see people who gave very little that now sacrificially give of their income. I could go on. I mean, I could go on and on. If you're new with us, it doesn't happen. That kind of cultivation doesn't happen in a Sunday. I mean, your conversion can happen in a Sunday, but that kind of gospel cultivation doesn't happen in a Sunday. But I want to tell you something. Before long, it happens. And you are a letter of recommendation for gospel ministry. You are. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. We are one another's. It is an inspiring thing to be a part of. But the enemy has tripwires. It, it's not easy to stay in covenant community. It's not easy to stay entrenched in relationships and to work through strife. Healthy ministry is about internal transformation, not external recommendations. Paul refuses. He has nothing against letters of recommendation. I don't either. I write them. I write them almost weekly for folks that need them for different jobs and educational endeavors and whatnot. It's not that he's against letters of recommendation. It's just he's not going to get into this tit for tat with these so-called super apostles. He says, you're my letter of recommendation. And I think that's inspiring, don't you? That's encouraging to us. I hope that you can be encouraged by this first point this morning. It's hard to argue with life transformation, isn't it? He says here in verse 2 that this letter is known and read by all. It's an intensification of the word to know. It's to know and to be known by all. It's known and read by all. It's kind of an idiom. It's, it's saying that you all know it. I don't need to have it read aloud. Your life is the letter. I love what Mike Andrews says about this known and read by all. He says that most reference letters are private and read only by a select few who happen to be in on the process of deciding whether someone is, is going to be invited to speak or not, or in the case of a search committee, decide whether they will be hired or not. The reference letter Paul talks about is public. Anyone who opens his eyes can see it and read it. They can see that so-and-so's life has been transformed and he's no longer the person that they knew him to be previously. Don't forget, Andrews writes, that some of the people in the Corinthian churches had a rap sheet a mile long. Here's what Paul said about them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. It was a church filled with people that that could have been said about them before the gospel was incepted into their lives. They were filled with the Spirit, and the gospel was cultivated in their lives. They could look around and say, and such were some of you. He could write that because it was true. 
He says, but you were washed, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's the same Spirit, the same God that he's calling them back to here in 2 Corinthians 3 and that we must be called back to again and again. Some of the pillars in the Corinthian church were former addicts. They'd struggled with drugs and alcohol for years. Some were converted out of alternate sexual lifestyles and gender confusion. Their lives had been changed in profound ways. And if anyone was required that required proof that Paul was an able and effective minister of the gospel, they just need to look around the congregation. And I encourage you to do the same and be encouraged by it. This is Christ's letter. It is our letter of recommendation that the gospel is real. Verse 3 speaks of God as alive, as living, probably a reference to Yahweh of the Old Testament, a living God as set apart from inanimate idols. Inanimate idols are powerless, but the living God can move in history and in people's lives. The Holy Spirit had done mighty things in the Corinthian church. The living God had been among them because of Paul's ministry. I love what it is that we have going here. I love what it is that God is doing as he is alive and he is making us alive inside. This is something that is written on human hearts on fleshly hearts, on our hearts. It's not something that's written with ink on tablets. Not that there's anything against written communication or letters of recommendation. It's just that this is greater than. It's something on the heart. It is the completion of God's covenant with humanity. Andrews, who I pulled from heavy for the sermon, he did such a good job preaching this text when he did it in 2005 and I reviewed his sermon this week. He quoted Scott Haifman and he said it like this. He said, Scott Haifman has written a powerful application of his passage to today's church. He said, Paul's understanding of the nature of Christian ministry strikes a piercing blow against all attempts, whether in Paul's day or our own, a piercing blow against attempts to fashion ministries and messages around techniques and technology. As children of the entertainment age, our culturally conditioned reflex is to make creating right environments for hearing the gospel our main priority, our aim, instead of relying first and foremost on the power of the Spirit to call people to repent. Our tendency is to concentrate on working the angles instead of relying on Christ to work rather than viewing the pastor as a mediator of the Spirit in conjunction with the proclamation of the Word, the minister becomes a professional whose job is to manage the corporate life of the congregation and oversee the creation of meaningful worship events. Scott Haifman, 2 Corinthians NIV Application Commentary. I think there is something to that that we should meditate on and consider. Paul recognizes that what... He has claimed here in terms of transformed lives of his converts might seem to be prideful. So he quickly moves to correct that impression by showing subsequent humility. Humility in every way. Our second point is this. Healthy ministry is internal. God-sufficient, not external resume building. It's not external. It's not about resume building. It's okay and even helpful. It's incredibly helpful to be educated in theology. It's incredibly helpful to know the Bible. It is. And just the same as you very likely wouldn't want a heart surgeon that hadn't gone to school, no matter how good he could put together a string of sentences with a bedside manner, you probably don't want a minister of the gospel that hasn't endeavored to study the Bible deeply, that hasn't drank from the well of church history, that hasn't sought to the best of his ability to understand 
the Word of God. You want that. But that, that resume is not the sum total of what you need. And the resume, if it is there at all, is, is not to be flaunted. It's background noise. It's underpinning. It's the foundation of the house that's being built of that minister's oratory. It's not something that's front and center. Sometimes we look to resumes too readily, and we put too much stock into them, uh, whether it's, it's certain kinds of degrees in college or, or graduate school. Sometimes we put too much into that when, in fact, we should be looking at how God makes us sufficient and we're not self-sufficient. Look at verse 4 afresh. This word confidence could also be translated trust. It's the range of meaning, such as the trust, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient. Not that we are sufficient. Very similar word is used in verse 5. Again in verse 5, it means sufficient or worthy or competent. In, in chapter 2, verse 16, there's a question, who is sufficient for this kind of ministry? Just above, later in 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 9 is a favorite verse for many people. My grace is sufficient, says Jesus. My grace is sufficient for thee. And so over and over, what's being going on here is the Apostle Paul wants to say, it's not my sufficiency. Even though God was working through Paul as an apostle in a way that we're not apostles, in order to write Scripture and establish churches in Asia Minor so that global expansion would take place, even though we don't write scriptures, we are ministers of the gospel, each of us in our own way to our own audiences. And God is our sufficiency. We are not to be self-sufficient. This is not about the creation of meaningful worship events. This is about mediating the spirit of the, or mediating the word to you by the power of the spirit that you might be changed from the inside out, a spirit that calls us to repentance and faith in Christ. I love the story of the first spiritual heart operation that Kent Hughes tells. He tells it well. He talks about Dr. Barnard, the first surgeon to ever do a heart transplant. And he did it on one of his patients, Philip Blyberg. It was in South Africa. And Dr. Bernard, after he had done the surgery the subsequent evening, he met with the patient, who also was a doctor, Dr. Philip Blyberg. And Dr. Barnard went to the cupboard and took down a glass from it and handed it to Blyberg. Inside that container was Blyberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he spoke for 10 minutes and plied Dr. Barner with technical questions. Then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And the other doctor that had performed the surgery, the surgeon said yes. And so, Blyberg handed it back, turned away, and left it forever. Didn't want to see it again. This is an illustration of what Christ does in us. We are the same people when we're looked at outwardly. But inwardly, we're very much different in our heart. We remain the same people outwardly, but our hearts are radically new. And it is because of that new creation that God has wrought inside of us that we can be a letter of recommendation for gospel ministry. It's not because of what we've done or earned. It is not. That's externals. It's what God has done in us. And that's what you see that you need. And so if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I just want to speak directly to you for a moment. 
you don't have the requisite resources to be a letter of recommendation yet because you can't work hard enough to get the Spirit. You can't condition situations right enough to earn God's favor. That is the kind of letter of the law that kills. You'll never be able to work perfectly enough to be in favor with God. God knew that. And that's why he took the initiative. It's because of our insufficiency, your insufficiency, that he took the initiative. And he took the initiative in this way. In the fullness of time, what it had come, God's son, Jesus Christ, came to earth in the flesh. And he lived a sinless life that you and I have not been able to live. And he died a death that you and I should have died for our sins and will die for our sins if we're not in Christ. And after he was killed, he rose again in, in, in hope for us that if we know him, we too will rise again one day after we have suffered and died. That's the gospel for you. If you receive that gospel and repent of your sins, you in fact will, as we understand the scriptures, be saved. An initial at your conversion, you will be indwelled with the Spirit. In fact, God has regenerated you for such a time as this that your response to the gospel would be further evidence that you have the Spirit. If this resonates with you, you are in a great place today to move simply from unbeliever to believer. Just receive the gospel I just said. I say just as if it's not a lifelong endeavor of walking with Christ. I say just as if it's just easy to just give up the old life and take the new heart. I mean, heart surgery is never easy, is it? It requires a recovery and all sorts of things. But in a sense, it is quite simple. Either you yield your will to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his work on your behalf, or you don't. Either it's his works and not yours, and you know the release of humility and of worship of an infinitely worthy Savior, or you don't. I would invite you, unbeliever, to become a believer today. Our second point is now fulfilled. It is healthy ministry is internal God-sufficiency, not external resume building. Our first point is also behind us in the sense that we are not about letters of recommendations to fix problems in our relationships that have long since been established. Instead, we, you are the letter of recommendation for effective gospel ministry. And we walk through problems. We don't step around them. We don't do end runs around them. And now we come to our third and final point. Healthy ministry is internal new covenant in Christ, not external incomplete old covenant works. If that sounds like a lot, I'm going to try to make it simpler for you. First, by reading simply verse 6, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. If you want to look down at your scripture journals or your Bible, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, so it may read slightly different than you, but I think you're going to get the key phrase, a new covenant. Here's what it says. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God gave us this ministry of reconciliation, a ministry of mercy, so we do not lose heart. If God gave it, he'll save it. Notice the terms of reconciliation, and I want to define them under the new covenant by reading six verses. You may want to simply catch the references, this new covenant that we're about. This new testament would be another way to translate that or say that. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So you may just want to write the references down. I've got six of them. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is written by the prophet Jeremiah. It's in your Old Testament. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He foreshadowed that. And the gospel of Luke picks up on the reality of that in the person and work of Jesus. Luke twenty two twenty. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the Notice, new covenant in my blood. So Luke twenty two twenty is the context of the Lord's Supper. It is a covenantal context. It is a context of a new covenant or a renewed covenant with God's people where the, where the, where the word is being written on our hearts and it's not just simply being rotely recited in our heads. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, the Lord's Supper, saying, This covenant is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. New covenant. Listen to the book of Hebrews for a few verses. 8.13. In speaking of the new covenant, of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice this old covenant wasn't unpurposeful. It's just that it has been rendered obsolete. It's not that it isn't scriptural. It's just that it is incomplete without reading of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Look at Hebrews 9.15. Therefore he, Christ that is, is the mediator of not an old but of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what's happening here? A promise is being fulfilled. What's happening here? A death has recurred because there is no propitiation for sins without death. There has to be a substitute sacrifice. Whose death is the substitute sacrifice? Jesus Christ. It's not ours. It's his. He died in our place. And so this verse tells us, since a death has now occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the law has this function in helping us to know about our status as transgressors, how we've transgressed against God and our works have been deemed inadequate. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says it this way, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. And so there were were Jewish people that had a religion under the Old Covenant that had not received the New Covenant, and there was a veil that needed to be lifted through the ministry of the gospel, through the power of Christ to take it away. It hadn't been taken away yet. So those six verses should help you understand the context of this New Covenant from Old Testament to New Testament, understand this New Testament. It's not about the letter of the law for salvation, but the spirit that gives life because of Christ's work for your salvation. So this context helps us to see that healthy gospel ministry, cultivating relationships, is about internal work. New covenant work in Christ that's then seen externally. It's not about us completing the covenant through our works. It is Christ's work from first to last. For a couple of more verses, a few helpful bonus verses on this score. Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, the law we know, and the law brings wrath because we cannot live up to the standard of the law, the holy standard of the law. 
Galatians 3, 24 through 26, and then verse 29 brings it this way. The law, the law of Moses, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Fascinating, right? Do you know who Abraham is? Abraham is as far in the rearview mirror of the B.C. years as we are today in the A.D. years. Spanning some 4,000 years for us to talk about Abraham. And the Apostle Paul, right in the middle, right into the church at Galatia, feels that he can say with authority, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's child. Look at the covenantal context of that in Galatians 3.29. Brother Jonas Wyatt, his next sermon, I think, gets into these verses somewhere. I'd have to ask to be specific, but it's, it's going to come along in, at the end of Galatians 3, and I look forward to hearing that afresh because this tells us that God of Abraham is God of me and you and that the same way that we are saved by looking to Christ's finished work on the cross by looking backward, so were the people in the time of Abraham saved by looking forward to a Redeemer. We are like Abraham in this. We need a substitute sacrifice, and that substitute sacrifice is Christ. In the fullness of time, this new covenant has now been made known, and the Spirit doesn't come and go as it did in the time of the insufficient prophets, but even though we're insufficient, The Spirit comes and stays in us, making us sufficient for ministry in the new covenant. The law was our guardian. It's where we get the English word pedagogy. Pedagogy, like a teacher of children or a guide. That's what guardian means. The law is guardian, but we're no longer under that guardian, that pedagogy. The work of a teacher, the instructional methods, the guardian. We're not under the guardian of the law. For in Christ Jesus, through faith, you're all sons of God. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's heirs according to the promise. The New Testament says it this way in Romans 10, 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So the law has run its course. It's done its job. It has been a pedagogy, a teacher, a guardian for us. It has got us to the appointed time where under the weight of our sinfulness, our utter sinfulness, we realize, I, I can't figure, I can't make this right. I can't save myself. And that's, that is the, that's the, 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 the shift point. That's the pivot point. I can't save myself. Who can, who can do this for me? It's Jesus. It's Jesus that does this for me. And I spoke to the unbeliever earlier, and I suppose I still am, but let me speak to you, believer. It's still Jesus that's doing it for you. It's still Jesus. It's still the power of the gospel. You didn't graduate beyond it. It's, you still need it. You need it for your sanctification. You need it for your growth in Jesus. You need it because you've stubbed your toe on this journey of life. You need it to reframe you. You need it to cultivate your relationships You need gospel ministry. You need Jesus. You need his work. This is not something that we outgrow. It's something that we cling to and come back to again and again whenever we're prone to wander until the day in which Jesus returns or we die and stand in his presence and he says, you weren't good enough, but I was. She's mine. Come and be with me in all of my glory for all of eternity. That is the gospel. And it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Amen. Healthy ministry is...
internal new covenant in Christ. It's, it's not external, incomplete old covenant works. It's why he can say here, without undermining a studious lifestyle, it's why he can say here that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Because God, Spirit, is life. He is the one that makes us ministers of a new covenant. He is the one that helps us to interpret the Bible rightly. There's a new class in our church that's being offered during our Sunday school learning time. One of our seminars is on biblical interpretation on how to understand the Bible. So if you haven't jumped in on one yet, just go to the end of the hall and you'll find that next Sunday morning at 9.15. But I love what it is that Philip Arthur says about this verse in relation to biblical interpretation. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. He says this, there are a few statements in the Bible that have been subject to more, there are a few statements in the Bible that have been more misinterpreted than this one. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He says the church during the Middle Ages used to justify allegorical interpretations of Scripture. They used this verse, the Spirit gives life, the letter kills. They held that the letter meant literal, while the Spirit referred to allegorical. This allowed a text to mean just about whatever the church wanted it to mean. Those who promote situational ethics love to quote this verse, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life, meaning that your ethics should comport to whatever situation you find yourself in. That's situational ethics. It's not Christian ethics. So they love to quote this verse because they contend it allows them to ignore specific commands so long as they are seeking to live in the spirit of love, which means whatever you want to do. And there are certain charismatics in our own day who use, not all of them, but some of them, who use it to say that the Bible is mere ink on paper, life and sterile. Why not bypass all that and deal directly with the Spirit? Words of faith and knowledge from the Spirit are superior, and that is bogus. That's not what this verse means. It's clearly, as I've illustrated, talking about the letter of the Mosaic Law. It even refers to tablets, which intimates Moses going up on the mountain and coming down and finding them with a golden calf and throwing the tablets down and they break. This is about the letter of the law of Moses. It's not about the letters of the New Testament being defunct and us just needing to go off into left field with however the Spirit leads us. The Spirit's leading you, all right, by the Word. The Spirit's leading you, all right, by rightly dividing the Word of truth. The Spirit's leading you, all right, with a thus saith the Lord. That's where you need to be going to get your inspiration for the direction of your life. Study the scripture in context. What a gift it is. What a gift it is. He's not undermining here letters in the New Testament. Instead, he's undermining returning to letters of recommendation to solve a relational crisis. I love how Sean, our service leader, read earlier from Romans 8. I love how he read about the law and how, how the law condemns us and enslaves us, and how it leaves us destitute to die, but the Spirit brings an experience that overcomes that condemnation, that the Spirit indwells us and gives us freedom and potency in God who is alive. This is what Romans 8 means. It's what Sean was reading to us earlier. We are ministers of this new covenant, meaning the Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. This is the meaning of this passage with regard to the internal work instead of simply external works. Healthy ministry is internal, new covenant in Christ, not external, incomplete, old covenant works. The action for you to work through is for you to work through conflicts amongst other believers when it's lingering rather than to look for external fixes, to return to a law-based approach 
to gospel reconciliation instead of actual gospel reconciliation. And I believe that if you will walk and cultivate the gospel in this covenant community, I believe the benefit is we will experience a more satisfying community because it's built on internal work of the Spirit rather than quick fixes and external works of the flesh or of resumes or of recommendations. The gospel cultivates relationships, but the gospel must be ministered. It must be shared. That's why the word minister, deacon, or servant of the gospel is so prolific in 2 Corinthians 3. Is the gospel... It must be ministered one to another. I'm leading the way with that, hopefully, and through this exposition, and hopefully whoever's up here is leading that way each week in ministering the gospel, but we're all ministers of the gospel. You're a minister of the gospel, and you need to minister that gospel one to another because that is what cultivates relationships, and that is what is used of God to build a compelling community for the watching world. It's compelling. The gospel is compelling. We claim Christ. We proclaim Christ. The Spirit has given us life. We, we, we don't need to rewrite the Scriptures or come up with our own version of things. We just need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be ministers of this ancient gospel, not to ensure the results in others, not to create the perfect event each Sunday, but to call us again to the gospel, to repent of our sin, and to believe what Christ has done finished for us that we might finish in him. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we so much need your grace just to understand it. We so much need your gospel just to understand it. What you have done is utterly simple, and yet what you have done is limitless in its value. What you have done is receivable by a commoner, and what you have done is worthy of reflection by the most developed thinker of our age. What you have done for us in standing in our place is granted us a ministry that works on internals and not just by external standards. Make us healthy, please, God. Do here what we wish for but have no power to do ourselves. Do something greater because you who are in us is greater than he that is in the world. I'm praying to you, God, asking you to help us. Help us because all of our help comes from you. Guide us in living out in this new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.